Welcome back to the Wise Athletes Podcast. For episode number 69, I asked Dr. Brad Stanfield from all the way across the globe in New Zealand to join me on the podcast to share his knowledge of what we older athletes can do to slow down aging and extend our time in life where we can remain strong and athletic. Dr. Stanfield is a medical doctor who has taken up exploring research on supplements and other interventions that can be used to hold back the creeping decrepitude that we call getting older. As you know all too well, this aging thing sucks and I am not sitting still for it, and neither should you. So listen in as Dr. Stanfield walks me through his thinking and his research around anti-aging modalities and protocols. We talk about fasting, supplements, and more, including what supplements he takes and which he used to take but no longer believes the research is holding up. All right, let's talk to Dr. Stanfield. Dr. Brad Stanfield, thank you for joining me on the Wise Athletes Podcast. Yeah, pleasure to be here. Yeah, please call me Brad. Ah, Brad. Okay, I'll try to remember that. Um, uh, Alien to me to call a doctor by his first name, but I will try. So, Brad, I understand you are a medical doctor who is also a, a searcher, for lack of a better word, for ways to optimize longevity and health span. Uh, how would you describe yourself? And, and can you tell us a little about your background and your approach to this space? Yeah, sure. So I'm a medical doctor by trade. So I see patients full time at the clinic. Um, so I'm a family doctor. And I kind of got into the, the space of longevity or, or ways to try and extend lifespan, if you like. Um, when I was going through medical school, I was about uh, well, coming to the end of medical school. And I noticed that I started to get some wrinkles around my eyes. And ah. I was I was kind of wondering, what, what can we do to slow down the aging process? Because I've always been interested, um, you know, in sort of supplements and what can I do to improve muscle performance? Because I was, uh, you know quite big into sport growing up. Um, sure. So I've always been interested in this space. And when I started to look into this field, you know, outside of um, my medical training, I noticed that there was quite a lot of exciting things coming through, uh, you know, the, the mice trials. Um, and th there were certain things that were often talked about with um, as ways to slow down the aging process. So that kind of kicked off the journey. And then I wanted to create a resource where people could actually go to where, um, the the information was more from human clinical trials as opposed to just mice because it, it's often very easy to get excited and ahead of ourselves you know from cell or mice data i wanted to focus yeah. on what the human clinical research actually shows um because yes there's there's a lot of things that you know has been proven to not improve the aging process but there are a few nuggets of gold um that's that's worth actually taking and looking into um, so that's what I kind of talk about on on my YouTube channel as well. Awesome. Well, and that's kind of how I've I have found you is through your YouTube channel where you you've produced some really great work, um, including some things where you have used to think certain things and have found new research to tells you that those are no longer things that to do and which which is sort of refreshingly honest in this uh you know internet era so uh i'd love to get into some of that with you my audience here on this podcast is the older athlete and so we are really quite well aware of this aging thing yeah i have long in my life held this aging thing kind of at arm's length didn't really think it applied to me you know, there, I sort of knew it did, but didn't really believe it uh, exactly. First time I ever cared about aging was when I was 17 and wishing I looked a little older and I could get into the bars. Um, then I didn't care about it, didn't have the experience that uh, you did about noticing wrinkles in my eyes. I, you know, yeah, sure, I knew that I, uh, losing a little hair and a little gray here and there, it, just didn't really it just didn't really hit me as a as a thing until recently but now i am far enough into it late to recognizing that i'm just like everybody else and this aging thing is kind of scary it's not for the weak uh, you know the prospect of losing who i am both mentally and physically is terrifying to me oh and then i get to die so yeah i'm interested in knowing more about what you know what you think uh, even you were mentioning before we hit record a study that you're in the middle of doing on rapamycin, uh, which I've been hearing a lot about. So I'm interested in hearing lots of those things. What, tell us, what do you think about aging? So <clears throat> overall, we don't 
exactly know why we age. We've got we've got the hallmarks of aging, which was a paper published, I think it was in 2013, um, mm-hmm. which which outlines yeah, the nine hallmarks of aging. And it goes through things like mitochondrial dysfunction, cellular senescence, um, stem cell exhaustion. So we, I think it's highly likely that there's a combination of things that, that, that we would refer to as aging um, in the cell. And we're not, we're not, I, I don't think we're exactly sure which hallmarks are the ones that are actually really important and which ones aren't. And, and if we're even missing some of the hallmarks of aging. So th- there's a lot of unknowns in this field, but w- we are starting, I think, to make progress um, to, towards answering those questions. And in particular, we, we know that there's many things that actually speed up aging. You know, if, if people uh-huh. are smoking or drinking too much alcohol or if they're, you know, having a sedentary lifestyle or a poor diet, all of those things speed up the aging process. And we know from a lot of clinical trials now that there's certain things that can delay disease. And that's what I'm quite passionate about in the um, in the clinic when I'm seeing my patients. Whenever a patient comes to see me, I'm wondering, what can we do to further optimize this person's health, be it through diet, exercise, sleep, is there, and then on top of that, is there certain medications or supplements that we need to introduce to, to optimize things further? So I think, again, that there's a lot of things we can do to speed up the aging process. We can remove those. And then also it looks like there's a couple of things we can do to possibly delay that aging process. Oh, that's interesting. Okay, so I, I really do want to get into understanding those better. But just to go back to the beginning here, the the aging is that there are some molecular, cellular level things that happen. We've all been hearing about them, even if we didn't really understand what we were hearing about, you know, telomere shortening and senescent cells and all kinds of things that maybe not 100% sure why those things were happening, but at the cellular level, things are starting to break down. And then maybe the first thing we notice is that we're not quite what we were. We don't heal as fast. Maybe we get injured a little more easily. Maybe we put our metabolism slows or something. We put weight on a little more easily, but it progresses even from there to where there then is you know, these classic markers of aging, you know, where, where we've got like chronic diseases, clogged arteries, um, uh, metabolic issues like insulin uh, resistance or type 2 diabetes even, that kind of thing. And I wonder if these things that we do that are accelerating our aging, I wonder if it's it's accelerating it at that cellular level and the, and the cellular level stuff sort of is accumulating that results in then these chronic diseases. And then once I have broken something and now I have this problem, I don't think that what I could have done to have avoided it in the first place will now solve the problem that I created by not avoiding it. Does that make any sense? Yeah. So in, in the clinic, prevention's always better than treatment. So, you know, let's take heart disease, for example. I'd much prefer to prevent heart attacks than treat heart attacks. Um, so, yeah, prevention is key. And, and one of the, the crucial things that people can do to prevent heart attacks is exercise. And I think that this might be quite a, um, a good path to, to talk about one of the hallmarks of aging. So, you know, back in the 90s and early 2000s, and possibly even earlier, there was this big hype around oxidants Mm -hmm. that we have got all these oxidants around in our bodies that slowly start to damage our dna damage our cells and the surrounding tissues and if we can remove those oxidants by taking in lots of antioxidants then we could protect our bodies and protect ourselves from um from that damage and actually it's it's far more complex than that when we exercise we release all sorts of oxidants and that's a good thing Those oxidants, they signal to our mitochondria and to our cells that they need to become more efficient, that they need to adapt. So that's what we don't want to be getting in the way of that oxidant stress from exercise, because otherwise we'd be blunting the positive effects of exercise. So that and there's good data showing this now that if we if we do take in a lot of antioxidants immediately after exercising or during exercise, it does seem to blunt the positive effects of exercise. Wow. So the, the the oxidant antioxidant balance is complex. So and and the the 2013 paper that I'm referring to where it outlines the hallmarks of aging goes into this that 
um, as we age, generally speaking, our oxidant levels increases, and that seems to be um, that that seems to be a signal to our cells to say, "Hey, we need to uh, we need to become more efficient. We are aging, if you like. Let, let's become more efficient and deal with this aging process a bit better." But it seems that th- that oxidant level reaches a threshold where um, our, our cells can no longer keep up with the antioxidant side of the equation. And then the oxidants run away from us and actually cause more harm than good. They betray their original purpose. Uh-huh. So it, it, it seems that we want, instead of you know trying to dampen down all oxidants, we want to balance it with antioxidants and oxidants. So one of the, one of the supplements that I take, for example, um, is sulforaphane, which boosts the um, antioxidant pathways in the body. Now, I don't take that on days that I exercise, so I only take it about, you know, twice a week. Mm. Um, but there is, there is interesting mice data coming through that if we do take molecules such as sulforaphane, we, we do um, that there is a lifespan extension seen in mice. Mm. And that was done from the interventions testing program, one of the, the well-regarded mice programs. So, if, you know, if, if we try and apply this to humans, it seems that if we take molecules such as sulforaphane on days that we don't exercise and try and balance out the oxidants to antioxidants, that that's an interesting pathway to explore. Ah, okay. So interesting. This is um, helping me uh, to try to take this back up a level to understand the, you know, the patterns here. It, it's sounding like there's things that we can do to help our body with our, its normal functioning. So not doing things like smoking, um, making sure we're getting enough sleep, getting, uh, you know, maybe a, a, a decent amount of exercise, but not too much exercise, but certainly not too little exercise, ha- you know, ha- having the right nutrients in our diet, et cetera. Um, these are things that help our body to function the way that it is intended to function, but still for whatever reason, time, the system doesn't work as well. And at some point in our middle age or, or later, the, in this particular case we're talking about, but it probably relates to everything in some way or another, the normal systems don't work quite as well. And we need to do something on top of how our body is functioning, like maybe with regard to antioxidants, at some point when our body is not functioning as well as it needed it needs to in order to stop incurring additional damage through oxidants am i understanding what you're saying yeah so as you've as you've mentioned i think when it comes to aging or or, or trying to maximize our longevity we first need to remove the things that would shorten that right so smoking, alcohol, sedentary lifestyle, you know, too much calorie intake. Th- those are the things that that are pro-aging. So first and foremost, we need to remove that. And then we need to try and optimize things, you know, with with diet and exercise and sleep, yeah. meditation, socializing that, you know, that that's what I've just listed there is 99% of what we know can extend human lifespan yeah. um, and, and help us reach um, so, so humans have got a theoretical maximum lifespan of about 120 years. So doing all those things that I've just mentioned can can vastly increase the chances of us reaching that 120 year mark and reaching it well. Okay. You know, we, we don't, I, I don't think anyone really wants to um, extend the time that they're having to live in a rest home or private hospital yeah. because they can't look after themselves. I don't think that's the goal here. The goal here is to age well. And what I mean by that is, making sure that we're overall disease free. So we're not, you know, suffering the effects of heart attacks or strokes. And we've actually got our muscle function where we can go and do the hobbies that we want to do. That's, that's for me, what I mean by aging well. Yeah. Um, and, and, and we can do that. So taking the, trying to, tr- trying to trace that back to one of the hallmarks of aging. So, you know, as we get older, our mitochondria, so the powerhouses of our cells, they don't become, well, they become less efficient they start releasing more oxidants than what they should. Mm. And that's what I was talking about, that we want, it seems, a, a viable strategy, that we want to try and keep the oxidant to antioxidant balance in sync. Um, because as we age, it seems that the oxidants, the oxidants start to 
outweigh the antioxidants. So again, that, that's that's why I think it's an interesting area of research. And that's one of the reasons why I take sulforaphane on days that I don't exercise, because I'm just trying to keep that oxidant to antioxidant balance. One of the other things that's interesting, so that there's an enzyme called mTOR, yeah. and mTOR is, the, is a nutrient sensing enzyme. Yeah. So when it's activated, we're building new proteins. But that system seems to get dysregulated as we age, where it seems that mTOR is always switched on. And that's a problem because if it's always switched on and the and the body is almost trying to compensate for losing muscle strength, yeah. um, then we never have time to actually do the cell clearance process. So this is called autophagy or the cell recycling process, where we're trying to get rid of these old cell components, such as old damaged mitochondria. So... You know, there's there's many interesting avenues that, that we can try and target to improve the way that we age. Okay, so let's maybe get into some of these ways that we can do it. I, I mean, what you're describing, both with sulforaphane. Sulforaphane. Did I say that right? Or sulforaphane. As well as the signaling of the mTOR is that um, nothing is sort of like a steady state. You, you, want, you want up and you want down. And, uh, and so when you have high uh, oxidants in your system because you're exercising, say, you want more antioxidants. Now, sorry, sorry, hang on. So, so, so not while we're exercising. So while we're exercising, we, we, we are stressing our body and yeah. we release lots of oxidants. Uh -huh. That seems to be a good thing. And we don't want to get in the way of that for, um, because we, if we do get in the way of that oxidant boost uh -huh. after exercise, it seems that we blunt the positive effects of exercise. So we, we do want, it seems that we do want these spikes of oxidants in response to exercise, but we don't want to have a consistent high level of oxidants in our body, it seems. I see what you're saying. Okay. And so um, you, you want to take the antioxidant supplement when you're not exercising as opposed to when you it, are it exercising. It seems, yeah. Okay. That's, that's, that, that seems like an interesting strategy. Okay. Yeah. And then the, and as far as the mTOR then, which is always turned on or, or more turned on as you get older. We, we lose the regulation of it. So when we're younger, there are nice peaks of mTOR and troughs of mTOR. So we've got this, this lovely wave, if you like, yeah. so with peaks and troughs. But it seems that as we age, those peaks and troughs, they gradually decline until a point where it, it's more like mTOR is just chronically switched on compared to, again, those nice peaks and troughs. Okay. So, again, an, another interesting strategy is to try and restore those peaks and troughs, and, and we can do that. Um, so so when, when we exercise and, and when we're taking in protein, yeah. that, that causes a spike in mTOR. Yeah. And if we, um, but when we want to switch mTOR off, we can do that using a drug called rapamycin. I see. So, well, is there any other way to do it that, that doesn't involve a prescription drug, you know, like fasting, uh, as an example? So so fasting probably does switch off mTOR or, or, or to, to some extent switches off mTOR. Um, when we age, one of the one of the things that we're trying to do is hold on to muscle strength. Yeah. And particularly if we get older, you know, I'm, I'm not convinced that trying to get you know, my 80 year old patients to fast for four or five days is a particularly good idea because mm. it seems that if, if we do that, we, we start to lose muscle mass and muscle strength. So I'm, I'm hesitant, very hesitant to, um, to recommend fasting to my older adults. But if we, if we switch mTOR off using rapamycin, I, I wonder, and again, this is one of the reasons why I'm, I'm running my own clinical trial to explore this. Uh -huh. I'm wondering if rapam using rapamycin intermittently, so once a week or once a fortnight, is a is a better strategy um, in older adults than than fasting. Okay, well, what's your speculation for uh, you know, like somebody who's sixty? You know, they're not really elderly. They're exercising. They're you know they they don't have any obvious signs of sarcopenia, but you know they worry about it, and so they want to maintain muscle mass and they work on it regularly. But they don't want this problem of having the mTOR always upregulated and accumulating senescent cells and damaged cells. I mean, is there a concern about doing something like a, a you know maybe not a three day fast, but you know doing a one day fast once a week or once a month or something like that? So I think it's an open question at the moment. We 
what we can speculate from what we see from the mice trials and and that's I've I've talked about this a little bit on my channel so one one of the one of the things that came out of the mice trials is that if they fast for 16 hours so and only eat within an 8 hour window in the day there seem to be both health span and lifespan benefits in those mice hmm. and that that got a lot of people excited myself included about the idea of time restricted feeding in humans where you only eat within a small window in the day yeah overwhelmingly however the human trials do not support time restricted feeding um for for health span benefits the only thing that it seems to promote um is often if people are eating within a smaller window in the day their calorie intake overall is less yeah. therefore they lose weight but there doesn't seem to be if, but if you calorie match both groups, so one group is time-restricted feeding and the other group can eat whenever they want, if you calorie match both groups, as in they're both eating as much food, there doesn't seem to be any added benefit compared to um, in, 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 in either group. So I'm, I'm hesitant around recommending, f recommending fasting um, un unless it's done over a multi-day period. And then you have to weigh the downsides of that. So again, I don't think that an 80-year-old should be fasting for three or four days. I, yeah, I think yeah. you, you know the, the, the downsides of losing muscle mass outweighs any benefits that you'll get. But if you're younger, then, then it becomes an interesting question. So um, I, I'd say probably up until the age of about 60 or yeah. 65. And again, I, I want to emphasize that this is speculation now. We don't have good human trials to confirm or or deny this yeah i i i wonder if multi-day fasting um say a four or five day period if you're still exercising um during that fast is an interesting way to switch off mTOR um and and clear away senescent cells and and activate autophagy pathways right right well i guess if you're still in a, a healthy enough state that you can put muscle on and you have got enough muscle mass that you can afford to lose a little during this period, and then you you lose some senescent cells, some damaged cells, and maybe some healthy cells because you haven't eaten, you know, for three days uh, just to make up a scenario. But then you go, you're working out, and you can put the healthy muscle back on. So there's this like concept of headroom, I guess, where as long as you stay healthy enough, then you can tolerate these kinds of short-term deficits for a good reason. And then you can keep going and you can stay strong. But once you've gotten far enough down the path of where you're in the middle of sarcopenia, you, maybe you do need some sort of a, a drug type intervention like you're describing. And that's maybe your only good choice at that point. Yeah, that, that's that's kind of what I wonder because you know as we age, um, we struggle to a hold on to muscle and b put it on. You you can still do this. So overwhelmingly, we've got good human trials showing that if older adults who don't exercise, if they start exercising, they will improve their strength. Yeah. So you know, exercise no matter what age you are is very very important. Um, but the the ability to put that muscle on and and that's and that strength on is lessened. It's still there but it's lessened. So if you're fasting for say three or four days and you lose that muscle strength, it's going to be harder for you to get back to where you originally were before the fast if you're say 80 or 90 years old. Um, so, so that's my hesitation. And, yeah. and that's why I think for younger people where we, we can put muscle on a, a lot easier compared to someone who's older, for me, that that's where fasting is a lot more interesting. Okay. Um, but it's got to be more than just 12 hours or 18 hours. It's got to be several days. Yeah, it, it, it seems that, that we need to... So the, the liver has got glucose stores. So so it's called glycogen. So when we're fasting, the, the liver can access those stores and release that, that glycogen so that we've still got um, sugar, if you like, for, for our cells to burn. But after about four, you know, 36 to 48 hours, those stores are generally burnt out mm. and then we need to switch over to other sources of energy um, and that's where it seems that in humans autophagy <clears throat> is really activated mm -hmm. now again and sorry i'm going to keep emphasizing this but we don't have good human research yet looking into prolonged fasts we've okay. got we've got some interesting 
mechanistic data is in what happens to the body when we're fasting, but we don't have good long-term studies looking at, you know, is this actually beneficial for humans? We can speculate, and I think it's probably a good idea for younger people to have, you know, multi-day fasts, so long as it's done safely, um, you know, every sort of four or five months. That that seems to be a, a reasonable strategy, but we don't have human data yet to confirm it. All right. Um, well, I, I can talk a little bit about uh, I, about my own fasting experience, uh, and 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 I'm going to ask you about yours. Um, the reason that I wanted to touch on this is because most of the people hearing this are going to say, "No way, no, not eat for three days? That's impossible. I can barely not eat for three hours. Are you kidding me? That is impossible." Tell me, what do you do for fasting? Yeah, so it, it can be quite daunting if, if you've never really skipped meals before and, and skipped meals on purpose. So, and and again, I um, sorry to emphasize it, that this is speculation, right? That this is this is an interesting avenue that, that I think warrants further studies. Yeah. And I personally fast, but we don't have data yet to confirm it or not. Sure. That said, if you did want to dip your toe into fasting, I think... I don't think that you should um, immediately go into a multi-day fast. <laughs> I think if, if you're going to do anything, it seems to make sense to try and skip dinner once and and, and start there. Because if coming back to time-restricted feeding, it seems that we do want to be working with our body's own circadian rhythms. So the sleep-wake cycle. It seems that if we get most of our calories in the morning compared to in the evening, that is working with our body. And there's human studies showing this that you know overnight the our blood sugar levels are vastly improved if we get less calories in the evening mm. and as opposed to um, if we get most of our calories in the in the evening. So I think if anyone wanted to dip their toe into fasting, skipping dinner is a good way to start, and and then you can kind of build up from there. You could you know once you've um, once you've mastered skipping dinner, you can try and skip lunch and dinner um, and and build your way up to it if, if you've never fasted and you try and chew you know a multi-day fast it's going to be very daunting and you're probably going to fail so i'd, I'd start small and move up yeah. um the yeah. good news is that if you try to do a fast and you fail that doesn't mean you die that just means that you eat something uh so That's right. th there really isn't a life and death uh, uh risk here um as, as long as you're you know not doing something that where if you you know, felt lightheaded when you stood up, something terrible might happen. But for me, my personal experience is that uh, fasting was impossible uh, until I started doing a ketogenic diet. Um, just I, you know, just experimented with that for a while. And that really changed my body to being able to um, not feel hunger really as intensely and, and just and my body could shift into burning fat very easily. And so what I found was that being hungry and not eating really had nothing to do with energy level. It's more psychology than anything else. And just understanding that not eating is not going to make my heart stop and, uh, and I'm not going to die. And, and really, Fasting is just a way of being in control of when I eat and what I eat. I, I think that fasting is really a great tool to have in your tool bag. Yeah, I I speculate that that's correct. That fasting, I think, would be something that I think younger people certainly should do. But again, it, it will be interesting to see whether the the human clinical studies um, support that or yeah. not. Yeah, my. my um, yeah, my experience with it. So I've done um, every sort of four or five months, I do a multi-day fast. So I, I between sort of five and seven days of fasting. Ooh, that's and, long. Yeah, that's long. And I, I make sure to do that safely. So what I mean by that is one of the one of the things that happens with those longer fasts is the electrolytes um can get altered quite drastically and and but we, we can prevent that so i take um i take a salt pill um and i also take some potassium um and again i, I 
since since I'm a medical doctor, I I, I kind of know what what dosages I should be taking um, mm-hmm. to to make sure that everything is going to be okay. And I also take a multivitamin um, during that. So I make sure that my electrolytes are fine. I'm still getting all the vitamins and minerals that my body should be getting. It's simply the the calorie intake that's removed. Um, cool. Yeah. And, and again, I, I make sure that I'm exercising during that as well, because I still want to try and hold on as much as I can to my muscle mass that I want to, instead, I want to encourage my body to burn any fat stores that, that are, that are here. Um, so what sort of exercise are you talking about? Uh, resistance exercise or cardiovascular? <clears throat> yeah, generally resistance. Yeah. So if, okay. if I'm, you know, I, I don't think that going for a long run or bike ride while fasting is particularly beneficial. Um, aside from the, the the caveat to that is that initially it seems that if you if you try and burn through your glycogen stores as quickly as possible, um, then you can crack on into autophagy a bit sooner. Mm-hmm. And again, that that speculation, but mechanistically that seems to make sense. Okay. Um, and so so initially I do still do cardio. Um, for the first one or two days but then after that it's primarily resistance training great okay well yeah i'm gonna try to do more of that myself i've got a little uh muscle mass to give uh so i'm not i'm not about to go into uh, sarcopenia just yet so i can work on my autophagy a little bit in the meantime so in the time that we have left here let's talk more about some of these like aging accelerants in our lives and the th- things that we should stop or or even things that are hard to stop really you know like stress but other things that we maybe can do diet wise or even supplement wise maybe even some that you do uh, what do you think yeah so we've already listed a couple um that seems to make sense to stop so you know too much alcohol smoking um are two of the big ones one of the other things, though, that, again, prevention is always better than treatment. So if we apply that to skin health, yeah. um, the, the the sun's UV radiation is incredibly damaging to the skin, and, and it, it ages the skin. So if you wear sunscreen every day, um, that, that reduces the the damage from the sun. So I wear, um, after I've brushed my teeth in the morning, I apply sunscreen, Hmm. um, to to my face, neck and arms every, every morning, even if I'm, even if I know that I'm going to be working in the office, um, it's just a habit that that I've got into. And the, the only, some people get concerned about the absorption of sunscreen into the body. Um, and there's very little human evidence showing any harm, but if, if someone is worried about it, they can use a mineral sunscreen. Um, and okay. I don't think anyone would argue that there's issues with a mineral sunscreen. So, And what about the vitamin one. D effect? I mean, if you're not getting the UV rays, isn't it lowering the amount of vitamin D being produced by your body? Yeah, so, so I, I take a vitamin D supplement okay. um, every day. So I take between 2,000 and 4,000 units every every day, and that's... That, that's that's more than ample. So people um, people do worry about about vitamin D, but it it's such a cheap supplement. Yeah. Um, and a, a lot of a lot of us working inside anyway aren't getting enough vitamin D. And and you know you, you could make a strong argument to take vitamin D supplements. I see. So we have so, to supplement anyway. You're saying? Yeah. You, we, yeah. Essentially, okay. if we have to supplement anyway, why not just take an extra? thousand units a day right. um, and, and protect your skin and, and protect exactly. your skin. Yeah. Okay, great. What else? So one of the other things that I, that I personally take is omega three. So there was a, a big trial called the vital trial, and that was a randomized controlled study over a five year period where, um, so, so there were actually four groups to this trial. One took omega-3, one took vitamin D, one took a combination, and one took a placebo, so a dummy pill. What they could see from this trial is that the groups that took omega-3 had a 22% lower chance of having heart attacks. So it it didn't, interestingly though, it it didn't reduce the the chance of deaths from heart attacks, but it reduced heart attacks themselves by 22%. Hmm. So... Um, for, for me, that's powerful evidence to take omega-3. Um, so so that, that's one of the other um, supplements that, that a lot of people take and I think is is valid. The one, the one caveat to omega-3 supplements, though, 
is that we want to make sure that they're high quality. And what I mean by that is that they don't contain heavy metals. So the website that I use to select um, my omega-3 supplement is called labdoor.com. Um, and and on that, they, they third-party test a bunch of different brands of omega-3. And from that, you can actually select a, a, a good one. Um, so, so th- those, if anyone wanted to dip their toe into supplements, I'd start with vitamin D and omega-3. And, um, I think and so are you supplementing like fish oil or is it some sort of omega-3 extract from, I don't know what? Yeah. So there's, um, there's algae extracts of omega-3, okay. um, that unfortunately they are a bit expensive, but, um, if money wasn't an object, then I'd probably go with that. Okay. Um, where, so at, at the moment, so I'm, I'm personally, I'm still trying to save as much money as I possibly can, A, to pay off student loan and B, <laughs> because I want to try and funnel as much money as I personally can into clinical trials. Sure. Um, so, yeah. So I, I still use the, the fish omega-3. Oh, okay, great. Yeah, that's, uh, that's great. Um, I, I take fish omega-3 myself. And, and I guess one of the other issues with those to be careful of is that the uh, Fish oil can become rancid if it's yeah. not done properly or too old or maybe gets exposed to oxygen or, or something. Um, but I guess these uh, testing programs check for that sort of thing as well, I'm hoping. Yeah, they, they do. And, and I also store um, the omega-3 and vitamin D in the fridge. Yeah. That sounds too smart. <laughs> I, I, ha- I hate to admit that I don't do that. I'm going to – I got to start doing that. Okay. Yeah. Refridge. Um, uh, so anything else? Um, omega threes, vitamin D, sunscreen. Yeah, there, yeah there's, um, and, and I'm, I'm assuming since people are listening to your podcast, they're already, you know, exercising regularly, um, and, and a good diet. And what I mean by a good diet is one that's got lots of fiber and low in sugar. Um, if, if, if people, so, so it's a, a whole food diet. Uh-huh. If people generally adhere to those two principles, generally speaking, it'll be a, it'll be a good diet. And, you know, there's the, the Mediterranean diet, I think probably has the best evidence in humans. There was a, there was a massive trial recently um, looking at secondary prevention. Uh, so what I mean by that is people that have got heart attacks, uh, people that, that have already had heart attacks, what is the best diet that they should be on to prevent further heart attacks? And there was a very good large-scale long-term study that recently came out showing that um, the Mediterranean diet is probably the, the best one for that. So it'll be interesting to see whether that also applies to primary prevention, as in preventing the first heart attack. Yeah. But if we if we sort of continue the, the supplement line of thinking, okay. um, it, it is a bit tricky for people to get the optimal levels of a couple of minerals. So... It's, it's tricky to get the optimal level of zinc, and it's also tricky to get the optimal level of magnesium. So um, people can can reach that optimal level either through a multivitamin or by taking those two supplements individually. Now, on this point, I'm not advocating at all for mega dosing. All, all I advocate for is just to, to reach that, that optimal level. So for zinc, in, uh, in males, I think it's about 15 milligrams of zinc that we want every day. Mm. Um, and it's quite tricky to do that just by diet alone. So I take a supplement that has got eight milligrams of zinc. Um, so so low dosing. So again, if, if you wanted to extend the supplements that you're taking, I think that would be a reasonable option as well. I'd heard some concern about zinc to copper ratios. Um, yeah. Can you talk so a little if, about if that? So if people are mega dosing zinc, then then there's um, a significant issue with copper absorption. So it, okay. it, generally speaking, you don't want to be ever mega dosing supplements because um, okay. that, that can cause all sorts of other problems. All right. So more is not better. Correct. Yeah. All right. And then what kind of magnesium? There's all kinds. Some are good if you're constipated and uh, <laughs> and maybe not good for actually getting magnesium into your body. What, what do you recommend? Yeah. So a bit of an open question. And a lot of it is a lot of this hype, if you like, is extrapolated from mice data. Um, that, that it seems that there are some uh, forms of magnesium that are better absorbed. In particular, there's there seems to be a, a few forms that that are best absorbed into the brain. Um, mm. So the 
the one that I w- would love to take is mag- um, magnesium taurine. Um, unfortunately, that there's not good brands um, that that sup- that provide that one. So <clears throat> the the one that I'm using at the moment is called magnesium three and eight, um, and it seems that there's interesting mice data showing that that form seems to get the magnesium into the brain and whether that's a good thing or not, who knows, but that that's the one that, that I personally take. Um, okay. and again, I'm not advocating for mega dosing. So, um, I take, uh, from memory, 150 milligrams of magnesium. And I think that the daily requirements is about 450, um, which, you, which most of that you, you can get from your diet. So I, I'm supplementing a third of that to, again, to make sure that I'm hitting that optimal level. Okay. Okay. Um, well, we can continue down the list if you like. Or, yeah, please. Or let's uh, let's do that. Uh, I, you know, because I I want to say that um, as a you know a longtime fan of Lord of the Rings and other sort of fantasy novels, I, I always kind of had this hopeful thought that there was some magical fairy dust of some sort that would make me healthier than I should be or stronger than I could have been otherwise or live longer than I might have. And so that made me susceptible to marketing bullshit, uh, you know, over the years. So I've wasted so much money on supplements and hopefully I haven't damaged myself on, on top of wasting my money. What you're describing are some things that sound sensible and, um, and you know, and with your background, you've looked into those. And so to the extent that there are things that, you know, maybe they, you know, not going to, really change us, but they can offset some of the less than optimal things we're doing in our lives, diet-wise or stress-wise or whatever, then these are useful things to know. Yeah, I I think I I agree with you that when I first started my channel and I was relatively new to relatively new to the supplement field, like I've, I've been taking you know, omega-3 and creatine supplements and, and those sorts of things for, for, for a long time. Um, yeah. w- whereas w- when I first looked into the longevity field, um, you know, things like metformin and resveratrol uh, were, were, were hyped. And yeah. th- those, are the, those are the things that, um, that I used to take. Um, and yeah, the, the evidence doesn't really support them. What, what I will say, though, is if, if we're looking for, for magic dust, if you like, you know, rapamycin in mice overwhelm. Like, there's very, very good data showing that it extends mice lifespan by about yeah. fifteen to twenty percent. And you know, but we've touched on that about how rapamycin blocks mTOR. So yeah. I, I think it's it's high time that we test this molecule in humans. And I think the most likely thing that it will do, if it's used intermittently in combination with exercise, I think it will help humans hold on to their muscle strength um, as well as other things. So. But for me, if 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 we if we had to pick one supplement, well, one medication or, or one molecule, if you like, that will actually make a dent into um, it, it, into human lifespan, possibly, it would be rapamycin. But you know, human so trials are needed. That's a drug that's available now for um, to avoid organ rejection if you've had an organ transplant. So it's not, it's not very likely that I could go to my doctor and say, Hey, I'd like to try rapamycin. If you like, get out of here. And I'm not yeah. giving you that. And th- that's, that's absolutely correct. So, um, if, if people need a kidney transplant, for example, you need to make sure that the, that your immune system isn't going to reject that kidney transplant. Yeah. So you, um, you take a combination of drugs, one of them being rapamycin, um, but so, so rapamycin has got a bit of a dirty name in, in medicine because, um, th- there's concerns that by using rapamycin and blocking mTOR that you're going to dampen the immune system. What, what I will say to that is that there was a large scale human trial looking at mTOR inhibitors, um, and, and what that does to, um, to the response to the influenza vaccine. Cause what, what wow. we were hoping is that if we could clear away um, old immune cells um, through through this autophagy process, um, if, if we could clear away those old immune cells that, um, but by taking the the mTOR inhibitors, that we would actually have a, a positive effect on the influenza vaccine, that the antibody levels would be higher, and that we would lower um, infection rates. Okay. 
so it, the, the human study didn't show an improvement, but neither did it show that there was a detriment to taking the mTOR inhibitors. So for me, that's powerful evidence that by taking these molecules, so long as we're not mega dosing them, um, that that we're not worsening things. And and I, I wonder whether that will actually improve things such as muscle, muscle performance um, right. and actually improve vascular health. So it'll be interesting to see what the human trials show. And again, that's one of the reasons why I'm fundraising for my own trial, right. looking into this molecule. Great. Okay. Well, t tell us more about some of the things, you know, I'm, I'm interested both in things that you are taking and you think are effective as well as things that you've looked into hard, maybe used to take, and now you don't take because you think they aren't effective, but are available to people generally. Uh, I, you know, metformin, I think is one of the ones that is generally available to people. It's become less of a thing that's so hard to get, but, uh, and I have taken it in the past and, and found that it really wrecked my ability to exercise. And so I got yeah. off of it as quick as I could. And I just adjusted my diet to deal with blood sugar issues. Um, anyway, but go ahead with what you have to tell us. Yeah. So with metformin, it was, so it, it's been used for decades in clinical practice. And every day I prescribe metformin to my patient, to my type two diabetic and pre-diabetic patients. Um, it, it's the first line medication that we go to alongside diet and exercise. And so it, it's an off-patent drug. It's already widely used. The initial mice studies showed a potential improvement in lifespan. And when we had a look at the observational trials in humans, so observational being you, you just observe and, and look at what happens to people that, that are taking metformin. Um, so we had, if, if we took the type 2 diabetic patients who were on metformin, and, and all they needed was metformin to control their blood sugar levels. If you compared that group to non-diabetics, the, the diabetic people that were on metformin seemed to have lower rates of heart disease. Mm. So you had exciting mice data and some initial hints in the human data showing that possibly metformin was going to be a powerful so-called anti-aging drug. And, and, and th that sort of generated the initial excitement around it. And, and that's on the back of that. Um, it, it's why the TAME trial, um, which is one of the, the famous trials looking into metformin, um, is, is currently being fundraised to, to undergo in humans. Mm -hmm. Since then, though, disappointing data has come through. So the interventions testing program is the creme de la creme of mice studies. And the reason for that is um, they select a group of molecules to test each year. And they test these molecules in, in the mice at the same time in three separate labs. So you can figure out, are you seeing a true result that's reproducible or is it just a quirk in, in a particular lab? They also use a lot of mice and they use what's called genetically diverse mice. So a lot of the mice studies, they use inbred mice because they want to make sure that each mice is, is roughly genetically the same. Whereas with these trials, since... Um, with the interventions testing program, since they use so many mice, um, that they can use the gen genetically diverse mice. Interesting. So in 2016, they published a paper where they tested metformin and there was no benefit whatsoever seen. So mm -hmm. so that that's disappointing. So the preclinical work does not support using metformin in, in otherwise healthy mice. I see. When, so it's not, it, not just a longevity drug if you're healthy already. Yeah, that's correct. Then when we have a look at the human data, in 2019, there was a paper published looking at what happens when you give metformin in combination with exercise. And overall, metformin blunted the positive effects of exercise by about 50%. So yeah. um, when they were testing patients VO2 max, I think it was after a 12-week period of exercise, oh, okay. the, the people that didn't take metformin, they had the full benefits of it sorry, increases of VO2 max, whereas um, the people that took metformin, their VO2 max only increased by about half. So um, th there's there's a clear signal that by taking metformin, you will blunt the positive effects of exercise. So in that way, it's harmful. Mm -hmm. Then you have to ask, is that potential downside outweighed by the, the benefits? So there was a trial, so, so th there was a big program called the Diabetes Prevention Program. And from that program, we've got robust trials showing that for pre-diabetic patients, they should be on metformin. So I routinely prescribe 
uh, metformin to my pre-diabetic patients. But as part of that, they also looked at so-called high-risk patients. So patients that aren't pre-diabetic, but are overweight or have uh, a high resting blood sugar level. Um, they gave half of them metformin and the other half placebo. And the, these patients have been followed up for 10 to 15 years. There was no reduction in cancer, no reduction in heart disease, no reduction in death rates. Essentially, there was no benefit seen whatsoever. So mm. there doesn't seem to be a benefit of taking metformin for non-diabetic patients, but you've got the harm of blunting the positive effects of exercise. So, you know, that for me, there's no justification at this stage for non-diabetics to take metformin. Yeah, my personal experience is a little different in that it seemed to be, it made it harder to exercise. What, what exactly was happening, I couldn't say, but the same level of effort, the same level of, of power output on my bicycle felt much harder to me. And so surely that would lower the amount, the difficulty of the work that I could do. So I would get less adaptive benefit from it. Anyway, so let's not talk about metformin. I, I'm, I'm not an advocate of metformin anymore. What are some of the other things? I mean, what are other things that uh, you, you think that maybe you take or, or, or um, you think people, uh, older athletes should take? So one of the, one of the things that I think is really underrated in the so-called longevity field or um, sector is creatine. Creatine is a wonderful uh, supplement to take. It, um, it improves the recovery from exercise and uh, it also improves your power output in, initially with your, um, with your workout. So you can, you can actually you know, lift more weights or, or run faster um, in, in that initial phase of, of your workout. Um, there was a safety concern initially in sort of the you know, 90s and early 2000s that creatine supplements would be detrimental to kidney health. But there's been long-term studies looking into this, and essentially there's no detriment seen to, to kidney health. Um, right. So I, I think creatines are, again, very underrated in, in this field. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I love I love creatine. I've been taking it forever. Um, and I understand that there's some neurological benefits. Uh, yeah, possibly. As well. It, it, yeah. it may improve cognitive function. So I'm not sure that there's any robust trials in humans looking at that. Um, I think there's some exciting hints in the mice data and possibly in humans, but nothing concrete at this point. So, but the, again, it, that would be another added bonus to take, yeah. um, to take creatine. Um, okay. So uh, that's great. I'm sorry to cut you off there. We're going to run out of time. And, and one area that I've heard you talk about before, and I want you to talk about it here as well, relates to collagen, glycine, I have long sort of thought, oh, that's there's nothing to that. That's market, you know, because I've been burned so many times. There's nothing to that. Tell us your thinking about these things. Yeah, so with collagen supplements, when I first looked into it, I, I was assuming kind of the same as you, that it was going to be marketing hype, that it was very easy for social media influencers to promote a particular collagen brand, and, and that was just going to be it. To my surprise, when I looked into the human research, there's, there's multiple, multiple randomized controlled studies showing that collagen peptide supplementation improves skin health in terms of skin elasticity, wrinkles. And when you come at, there was a 2020 analysis that combined all of those trials. Um, so, so it included 10 separate clinical studies. And overwhelmingly, it shows that, yeah, collagen supplements, they do improve skin health. Um, and all of the trials that they included showed showed roughly the same thing. So I think we can um, say with some confidence that collagen supplements, they do improve skin health. Yeah. Um, so if so, it improves skin, what else might it be improving? Yeah, possibly. Yeah. So it's um, I, I take between 10 to 15 grams of collagen peptides every day. And as part of the, um, the collagen peptides, uh, there's also quite a lot of glycine in it, so an amino acid. And one of the positive things that's come out of the interventions testing program, which we've already talked about, is that there was a life, it was a small, but uh, there was a lifespan benefit seen with glycine supplements. Really? Um, so, you know, it, th that would also be a, a nice um, 
a nice side effect, if you like, of taking collagen peptides. Maybe it's not just skin health that we're that we're improving. Um, so you know, also, also glycine is one of the uh, one of the building blocks of a powerful antioxidant called glutathione. So we're, you know, we're, we've talked about the oxidant to antioxidant balance. Yes. So maybe glycine supplements can also help maintain that that oxidant antioxidant balance. So, you know, it, I, I think th there's a strong case to be made to, to use collagen peptides. Yeah, I have lately been really taking a lot. Uh, I, I had a, uh, a quad tendon repair and I thought, all right, if I ever needed some fairy dust, it's now. And so I've been taking a ton of glycine and collagen hydrolyzed uh, collagen. And the other thing I've been doing, uh, tell me if I've been foolish, is um, taking a lot of vitamin C when I take these things. I'm t I was told that it was good for uh, absorption or uptake or something. I haven't come across any convincing human data looking into that. I I've possibly overlooked a, a study, but I haven't I haven't seen anything. What, what I will say, though, is that around vitamin C supplements, this has been studied for decades, and it, it seems that we can, so long as we're eating a good diet filled with fruits and vegetables, we can get all of the vitamin C that we need. Mm. And it, a lot of the headline studies, what they'll do is they'll only include patients that had a baseline low level of vitamin C, and mm. then they'll give half of them vitamin C supplements and the other half placebo. And they'll say, oh, look at these amazing benefits from vitamin C, when actually all they're doing is just bringing up the vitamin C to the level that it should be, which you can yeah. easily get from your diet. So okay. I personally don't take vitamin C supplements. I, I, you can get enough vitamin C from the diet. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Well, good. All right. So uh, we're running out of time here. I want to leave some time for you to tell our audience how they can find more about you, maybe even get in touch with you if they wanted to. Where Where are you in the internet world? Yeah, sure. One thing that I do want to mention, I know we're running out of time, but I'll, I'll just mention it. Um, okay. My, my uh, prediction, if you like, for yeah. longevity um, I think there's going to be a trifecta of drugs that we will take. I think uh -huh. the first one, and, and I, I don't understand why this is so controversial in the longevity space, but statins, I think, I think most patients will be on statins and that's to, um, that's to look after the, the fat side of the equation um, okay. or cholesterol side of the equation. The, the second side of the equation is around blood sugar levels. And I think that, the, the class of medication called SGLT2 inhibitors uh, will be used by most people. And that's, again, a, a very, very common medication that I prescribe to my type 2 diabetics. Huh. And, and that's the, if you like, carbohydrate, glucose side of things. Okay. Then the third aspect to this is the protein. And I think that rapamycin used once a week or once a fortnight will look after the protein side of things. And we've talked about mTOR. I think that trifecta is going to be the um, longevity key, if you like. Um, and so you think that might be the fairy dust that yeah. I have been looking for all along? Yeah, I, I think that that's that's to me an extremely powerful and interesting uh, combination. And would it be when it's available? Do you think that it would be useful even for people who have? done the wrong things for a lot of years and they're having problems already, you think it'll still be good for them? Absolutely. So again, I, I don't understand what, like on online, when I read the YouTube comments, if I'm talking about statins, there's so much anti-statin stuff. And I, th this isn't really something that I see in New Zealand where I practice medicine. Yeah. Um, it, it's I don't know why, but it seems that there's a lot of anti-statin stuff in the States. Um, statins are wonderful medications. And that they overwhelmingly um, reduce heart attacks. They reduce strokes. Um, the, there was a concern around things like memory issues, but that's been debunked conclusively. Yeah. Um, if you have a look at issues with, um, you know, muscle pains, that yeah. affects about one to two percent of patients. And often, yeah. when you so-called re-challenge them. Um, yeah. uh, so, so you start the statins at a at a later date at a lower dose overwhelmingly they will tolerate the statins really well and get those benefits. Um, okay. So yeah, 
I don't, I don't quite understand it, but there you go. <laughs> people, what are you going to do? Yeah. So tell us how we can find you and, sure. and learn more about you. Yeah. So I, I run a YouTube channel where we've got about 110,000 subscribers now. So it's wow. just my name, Dr. Brad Stanfield, okay. um, would be the best place to, um, to reach me and, and to check uh, out more of my content. And as part of that, You'll see that in, in under all of my recent videos, I've got a fundraiser for my clinical trial of rapamycin, which we've touched on in, uh, during this podcast. Okay. So if patients ever wanted to actually make a true dent in the um, longevity research, I think this will be a fantastic place to start um, awesome. to donate. So yeah, that's me. Well, we'll get those links in the show notes for anybody who didn't take notes here. And uh, Brad, thank you very much. This has been illuminating for me and hopefully valuable to our audience. Yeah. Thanks. It was a lot of fun. Thank you so much for listening in to my discussion about aging and what we can do to extend our time in life and health with Dr. Brad Stanfield. You can find more information about Dr. Stanfield in the show notes. And while you're there, you can sign up to take a free fitnesses practices assessment, send us a question to address on the podcast, see all of our episodes, subscribe to our podcast, and you can sign up for our newsletter. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with your friends. That'd be a great help. Thanks again.